everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. This week I, um, I flew to Mississippi. I was just there a couple of nights, and it turns out getting from Denver to Jackson, Mississippi, uh, you can't go straight there. You have to go through Dallas, which is like going through the pit of hell, I've decided, the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, because the, the terminals are like a mile and a half apart, and I didn't discover the little SkyTrain. I just ran. Yeah. Yeah, rookie, rookie era. But when I got from the flight from uh, Dallas to Jackson and then Jackson back, man, the plane was really small. And I don't know if you're like this. My grandfather was an amateur pilot, so I have spent some time in small planes, and they're not very comforting. The bigger the plane, the more comfortable I am. So here we are in this small plane. It's one of those planes where the, the roof is six foot one. I can tell you for a fact uh, because of what I had to do to get through. So I sit down, there's a lady next to me, we exchange the pleasantries, and then we taxi out, everything's fine, and then as the jets go and we start to take off, she does this. And I'm like, what does she know that I don't know? And we fly, and it's a relatively uneventful flight, and as we land the plane, the plane touches down, and as we are fully on the ground, she does this. And it got to me thinking about all the different ways we use our faith. Uh, I don't fly a ton, but I do fly frequently, and it doesn't ever occur to me. I don't know if this is a good or bad thing. I'm not making a commentary on this lady or on me. I'm not suggesting that one of us is more spiritual than the other, or one of us is crazy and the other one's sensible. I'm making no judgment. I'm just saying, when I go to fly, it doesn't occur to me to ask God's help. Does that make sense? I guess... Right or wrong, I guess I put my trust in the pilot. And I just don't think about inviting God into that experience. And uh, what it got me thinking about, because this week we're talking about faith, what are the different things we ask God's help for? What are the different things we just run our life on our own? Various people, like this lady clearly, I mean, obviously she was most likely Catholic. For her, it was an important part of her faith. What, What was she doing? Was she asking God to guide the pilot? Was she just trying to be more aware of God's presence in her everyday life? I I suppose I should have asked her, but I didn't think to ask her. But it certainly got me thinking about when are the times in my life that I'm living by faith and when are the times in my life I'm just living under my own steam or or living by faith in something other than God. So today in this message, we're going to talk about faith because it's a cornerstone word in the church. It's just one of those I don't know, top three words, maybe top five words in the church, faith, and yet we're not quite sure what it is. Like, it's also a nebulous word, right? Faith, if you ask everyone in this room and those of you online, if if I ask you to say, well, what is faith, and how do you know, I think more importantly, how do you know that you're living by faith? I think most of us would struggle to answer both of those questions, quite frankly. It just feels ambiguous. Uh, I think for many followers of Christ, it feels out of reach. I think for many people, it feels like a target that we very rarely hit. If you ask your average follower of Christ about the gap 
they feel between what they believe and what they experience. The gap that Emily spoke to us so beautifully about last week, I thought I would be further along by now. That was last week's gap. And I think it's because we don't know what it means that when we're walking by faith, like it's not a clear target for us. So what I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to have a fairly, not random, but a fairly broad message where we talk about the various ways faith is talked about in Scripture, and then I'm going to talk about the various ways we can walk by faith today. And this is one of those messages, for those of you who maybe been around Discovery for a while, where we just throw out quite a few ideas and then we trust that you will latch on to one or two ideas for yourself and tackle them this week. If you had come today expecting a fully prepared meal, this message is more like where I open the pantry and say, here's a bunch of ingredients, what do you want to cook? Probably less threatening than I just made it sound, I guess. So what I did this week is I actually did a survey in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and I looked at every single time the word faith is used and what does the author have in mind? Faith is used 236 times in Scripture. Now, of course, I'm not going to go case by case. That would wear us all out. But it was interesting to me that the way the word faith is used changes quite a bit through Scripture. So let's just take a look. Let's start in the beginning, in Genesis and Exodus, some of those early texts. Every time faith is mentioned early in the Bible, it's used as a legal term. Uh, people do things in good faith and bad faith. Uh, a lot of times faith, when they use the word faith in the early part of the Bible, someone's breaking faith. Like when Abraham tells the king that Sarah is his sister, not his wife. It's a great story where one of the most honorable people of God just tells a bald-faced lie and tries to get away with it. It's one of my favorite things about the Bible, by the way. If you ever feel bad about your faith, all you have to do is read a person of faith in the Bible and find out that you're not doing so badly after all. So here's Abraham, and he meets a foreign king, and he's worried that the king is going to be sweet on his wife. So he just lies to the king and says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Later on, God goes to the king and says, don't touch that woman. And the king comes back to Abraham, and he says, hey, 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 you broke faith. You broke faith with me, meaning you didn't keep your word. You were dishonest. So faith in the, at least the early parts of the Bible, has something to do with your character and your integrity. For those of you who struggle to know whether you are good at walking by faith, if you are a person who keeps your word, and if you're a person who, when you break your word, you make repair, then, according to the Bible, you're actually pretty good at walking by faith. That's one way that the people of God walk by faith. We keep our word, we honor our promises, we are people of integrity, we tell the truth. Later in the Old Testament, the, the idea of faith shifts, and particularly Isaiah uh, is where it starts to be talked about as a way to relate to God, a way to trust God when circumstances around you are really crumbling. So for example, in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is talking to Israel, the people of God, and the enemies of Israel, Assyria and Babylon, are coming and it's looking like uh, Assyria and Babylon are going to invade Israel and, and export them out and make them their slaves. And Isaiah says, if you don't stand by faith, you will not stand at all. So again, in the Old Testament, there's one way you can walk by faith. It's simply by telling the truth. Every time you tell the truth, you are 
walking by faith. You're hitting the target. The reason I'm being this overt, by the way, is when I talk to followers of Christ, one of the number one issues they have is they don't know if and when they're walking by faith. So this would be helpful to say, well, if you do this, you are. So then the other example is when circumstances around you are crumbling and you're trusting God because you don't have the strength to manage it on your own, regardless of the outcome, regardless of if things work out the way you want, then you're walking by faith. All right, in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and he shifts the way he talks about faith. And in some ways it makes it tricky for us because uh, Jesus talks about faith like it's a unit of measure, a unit of measure. Like it's, he actually measures somebody's spirituality by how much faith they have. So like, for example, how tall are you? Well, I'm six foot two and a half. How much faith do you have? About the size of a tiny tree seed. Jesus says, actually, that's plenty of faith. You can get the job done with that kind of faith. Jesus is constantly going around and he's saying to people, you have very little faith. You have great faith. And by great, he doesn't mean fantastic faith. He means you have a lot of faith. A lot of faith. So Jesus uses faith in the New Testament as a unit of measure. Matthew 17, he replies, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So if some people have a little bit of faith and some people have a lot of faith, I think the good news for us is that means that we can grow in our faith capacity. And also, I find the words of Jesus here, as much as it's very confusing, this idea that you can cast a mountain into the sea, the idea that a little bit of faith can get you a long way. It turns out you can have a tiny bit of faith and God will do the rest and something amazing can happen. The other way Jesus uses the word faith is he says that it's the conduit by which you and I are saved and healed. Um, This is interesting to me because time after time, in fact, most of the time when Jesus heals somebody, he actually gives credit to their faith for his healing. He says, hey, the reason I healed you is you had faith. That's why I healed you. And over the years, this idea that our medical healing is connected to how much belief we have has been twisted by some evangelists, particularly certain televangelists. They really got traction on this idea of a quid pro quo with faith. In fact, what happens is some of these televangelists, they actually go around, they'll set up a big tent, you'll come in, they make you give a lot of money, they promise that you'll get better with healing, and when you don't get healed, they blame you. They say it's because you didn't have enough faith and they're parroting the words of Jesus. Many of you know I host a podcast and I have all kinds of guests on it. About a year ago, I hosted Benny Hinn's nephew. Uh, Anyone ever heard of Benny Hinn in the room? Those of you in the room? Yeah, his nephew grew up in that kind of faith and then as an adult, he walked away from the family business which was the fake faith healing business and he began to expose his own uncle a bold man, and now Costi Hinn is down in Arizona. He's a preacher of the gospel. And he came on the show and talked about what it was like to fly around in private jets and what it was like to have millions and millions of dollars and then what it was like to walk away from all of that in the call to follow the one true God instead of this sham of an operation. 
where his uncle and his other family members were intentionally using guilt and shame to get money out of people and then blaming them when they weren't healed. Some of these televangelists, uh, they actually say to you, I don't know if you've been up late on TV, sometimes you can't sleep and you get up and you watch TV and there's some televangelist on the show. Listen, not all televangelists are bad, just most of them. And uh, this one guy, Robert Tilton, um, you know Robert Tilton? Yeah, he's been around for a while. I, I have not looked into Robert Tilton for about 10 years, but back when I looked into him about 10 years ago, the reason I looked into him is I called and got the prayer cloth that he promised. Do you know these things that they say, hey, if you have faith, make a phone call or, or send in a note. I'll send you a cloth that I've prayed over, and all you have to do is lay that cloth on the part of your body that needs healing, and you'll be healed. So I did it. I thought, oh, this would be a fun social experiment. Uh, I remember trying to send money to him, and Lisa wouldn't let me. She's like, you can't be sending this guy money. He sent me so much stuff, I didn't even send him a penny. He sent me a cloth that was cut out in the shape of his hand. It was a Robert Tilton-sized hand. And he's like, hey, just put it on. And I had a backache at the time, so I laid it on my back. Nothing happened. So I'm like, I call him back. I'm like, hey, man, nothing happened. So then he sent me olive oil from the actual olive groves of the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Robert Tilton. It was probably, let's face it, extra virgin olive oil from Costco that some poor person's pouring into a little vial. But Robert Tilton said, just anoint your back with that, you'll be healed. That didn't happen. Next came some water from the Jordan River. He had this whole mechanism. And you might think that sounds hilarious, but he blames it on the Apostle Paul. Acts 19, we don't have this one on the screen. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. It's tricky, isn't it? It turns out that faith is used in all kinds of different ways in Scripture and some of those ways work today and, and some of them don't. Now, when we get to Paul, Paul talks about faith and it's very much a noun he uses it in two ways, and I personally find these both very helpful for us today. The first one is he calls it the faith. When Paul's talking about faith, one of the ways he talks about it is he says it's the faith, which is his synonym for the church. When Paul talks about the faith, he means the church. He means a group of people who gather, who believe in Jesus, they follow Jesus together as an intentional community, and the Holy Spirit is with them, and that whole thing at once is the faith. So just as telling the truth is one way of walking by faith, another simple way to walk by faith is participate in your local church. Whether it means attending a worship service or joining a midweek community or rolling up your sleeves and serving like Robin talked about it before. You know, Discovery is online now like many churches. Uh, we now have people who tune in from, I believe it's all 50 states and even some internationally. And on the one hand, I just want to speak to those of you who are tuning in online, whether you're tuning in live on a Sunday or during the week. On the one hand, we think it's wonderful that you've found discovery and you're finding meaning in life through it. On the other hand, we would highly encourage you to find a, an actual embodied church in your postcode, in your zip code. It doesn't mean you should stop tuning in online with us, but really the heart of the church is actual physical embodied interaction together. 
So for those of you who join us online, we hope you are also participating actively in your local church, and that's our message to people right here in the front range of Colorado as well. Let's face it, online was a necessary gift through COVID, but online exclusively is not really the beginning and ending of what the scripture has in mind when it talks about the local church. What the scripture talks about is the faith Backstage every, every week, our band, the preacher, our AV team, our camera crew, we all gather backstage for about 20 minutes. And what we mostly do is receive communion together and then we talk about where have we seen God at work and how can we pray for each other. We have our own prayer time and uh, I guess the faith backstage. And almost every week, including this week, there's almost always somebody who has something incredible to celebrate and there's almost always somebody who has a tragedy or something that really has their heart broken. And so we celebrate with those who celebrate and we mourn with those who mourn and we pray for each other and we're in it together. That is what Paul would call the faith. That's what Paul would call walking by faith. So if you'd like to grow in your faith, and your primary experience with a church is sitting in a row and just one hour a week, or your primary experience with the church is tuning in on a device or a screen, and that's the beginning and ending of your faith, God is encouraging you to grow your faith, to step out in faith and participate actively in embodied community. Knowing the names of some people, some people knowing your name, Weeping with those who weep, laughing with those who laugh. Serving under-resourced and marginalized people. Worshiping together whether you like singing or not. All of it. Generously giving of your finances for the cause of Christ. That is what Paul calls the faith. Paul also talks about faith as if it's like a, a conduit. Like it's a way of encountering Christ. Paul says over and over and over again, we are made right, we are made righteous through faith in Christ. So it's, faith then becomes like a conduit, it's like a, a connector, it's like a portal, it's like the rainbow bridge that Thor uses to get back home. I don't know if that's the best metaphor for faith, but there it is. Um, but what's interesting about the way Paul talks about the faith as a portal or a conduit, it's not so much a portal where we reach out to God, it's a portal where God God reaches out to us. I was trying to think about this. I was like, what's the best metaphor for this? And this is one that might help us. It feels to me like faith is like when you're in class and you need help from the teacher. And so faith is like putting your hand in the air. And then God comes right over to help. Sometimes, particularly if you're in middle school, or even elementary school, it can feel like the worst possible thing to put your hand in the air because it signals to your friends that you don't know what you're doing. But God never leaves you waiting. God already knows. God's just waiting for you to step out in faith. And so faith, in one sense, is asking for help when you need God. That, for many of us, is how faith starts. Many of us have a story of coming to Christ at the end of our rope. I tried this and I tried this and I made a mess of my life and I reached out and God was there. Faith is the portal, but it's the portal that God comes to us. It's not the portal where we have to go to God. And Paul says, 
Faith gives us access, but then beyond that, it grants us privileges. So if faith is a portal, it, if, you're, if you're young in your faith, you're using faith like putting your hand up when you're at the end of your rope. You're just always asking for help. In fact, there are many people, maybe even some of you, that your primary relationship with God is ignoring God until you desperately need God. Then you stick your hand in the air. God, save me again. Help me again. You treat God like the neighborhood pharmacist. How many of you visit your pharmacist just because you enjoy their company? Not many of us. No, you, you visit the pharmacist when you desperately need relief. There are many people in this culture, that's the beginning and ending of your relationship with God. But God's inviting you to grow in your faith, to not just leave your faith there, because Paul says that faith doesn't just grant us access to the Father, it also grants us privileges. And so deeper faith goes from asking God for help when we're stuck to simply enjoying God's company throughout the course of a day. God's companionship through moments in your day. When I was in Mississippi, uh, I was working with a church staff doing some of my leadership anxiety coaching and, and they told me, they said, you can't start before 9.30 in the morning and you have to be done at 3 p.m. Oh, why? Well, at 9 a.m. our staff all pause to enjoy the goodness of God for half an hour. And then at 3 p.m. we all pause to enjoy the goodness of God for half an hour. I went to 3.01 and as I was closing in prayer at 3 o'clock, all these alarm, all these phone alarms started going off all throughout the room. The reminder for the staff, stop what you're doing and enjoy the companionship of God for 30 minutes. It was beautiful. I felt shame because I went late, but it was beautiful. If you're not sure how to enjoy God throughout the course of the day, because that can be a difficult thing when you get all caught up in yourself. Uh, gratitude is one of the simplest ways that you can grow in your faith. Just set your phone alarm or whatever helps you remember and just pause and be grateful. It's pretty simple. And no matter what's going on in your life, in this culture, uh, there's a lot that we can be grateful for. So if you want to grow in your faith right now, I'm just going to give everyone 30 seconds to answer the question in your own mind. What are you grateful for right now? What has God done for you that you can give thanks to God for right now? Just 30 seconds of silence. Just 30 seconds for you to grow in your faith. So how do we walk by faith? How do, how do we actually live out our faith? Well, so far, we do it by telling the truth, by keeping our word, by being a person of integrity and character. We do it by trusting God when circumstances seem to be coming in on us rather than trying to do it on our own strength. We try to grow our faith like a measure where we take further and further steps of boldness with God. We Walk in faith by putting a hand up when we need help, but not just only relating to God like he's the great rescuer, but also 
by learning to enjoy God's company throughout the course of the day. Another way Paul talks about faith is he actually says our faith is based on one event in history. For those of you who aren't followers of Christ, and Discovery has always had a rich tradition of welcoming and enjoying many people who are not followers of Christ, even people who are atheists, people who have uh, no belief in a God at all. So maybe for those of you, here's what Paul says that might be helpful to you if you want to scratch around the edges of faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. So for those of you who are not followers, Paul actually tells you where you can start the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus raise from the dead or did Jesus not? This historical event is the cornerstone. It's the linchpin. It's the beginning and ending of the Christian faith. If Jesus raised from the dead, then everything else falls into place. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're all wasting our time here and now. I love it. There's a a Christian named William Lane Craig. He's quite famous for going into non-Christian spaces like public media, universities, and making a logical, reasonable, scientific um, case for the resurrection of Jesus. William Lane Craig, his name is. He was on Larry King once. You remember the late Larry King, one of the most famous interviewers in American culture? And Larry King was just like baffled by this highly intellectual, thoughtful person who was an incredible brainiac who actually believed in what Larry King always thought was an absurd myth, the resurrection of Jesus. And King said to, uh, to William Lane Craig, because he couldn't make sense of this guy, so he thought, well, I, I'll get him this way. I'll skewer him this way. And King said to him, okay, Dr. Craig, if I prove to you beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus did not raise from the dead, and and you knew it was true, like I gave you enough facts and enough evidence, and you knew Jesus didn't raise, would you still follow Jesus? And he's expecting William Lane Craig to say, oh, yes, I would, because it's meaningful to me, and it gives my family life. And, and Craig says, of course I wouldn't. Why would I waste my time with something that's not true? Completely threw King off. It's a great interview to watch Larry King trying to figure out, what do I do with this guy? But that's because of Paul. So if you're not a follower of Christ, where you can begin is wrestling with the resurrection and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that Jesus raised from the dead. Those of you in the room right now, look around. You are not surrounded by a bunch of morons. Um, Many of us who are followers of Christ, we're tired of you painting us with a brush that we're just stupid, we're just idiots. Really, you think so? Have you asked us? To give an account for the reason of it for our faith? For the reason of the evidence of what we know? Have you even looked into it at all? Or are you just one of those cool deconstructionists that like to dismiss things without actually building a construct for you? That's been my general experience as I work with intellectual followers of Christ and people who are not followers of Christ. All right. Then we get to Hebrews. And in Hebrews, we're almost to the end here. The author of Hebrews says, he actually defines faith for us. Now faith, 
The author says, is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't think this is quite appropriate for a preacher to say, but the first time I read that, I thought, that's no help whatsoever. Well, it's just, it's just Bible words. But when you really look at it and you slow down, you look at it, it's actually tremendous hope. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that faith is useful for hope and it's useful for assurance. And I think everyone can agree, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, we in this culture are in desperate and dire need for hope nowadays. Someone who can help us make this place a better place. And we need assurance. We need assurance that after we take our last breath on this earth, there's a loving creator who breathes life into us and ushers us into the new heaven and the new earth. Faith is hope. And faith is assurance. One of the things I wish the authors of Scripture talked more about, it's not really in the Bible, is how faith shifts and changes over time. Those of you who have been followers of Christ for maybe a decade or more, have you noticed that? That the faith of your early walk with Christ is quite different than the faith you have in Christ now. Not always, but oftentimes your early faith is more certain. It's more concrete. It feels like you know what it is, but over time your faith can feel more abstract or sometimes you can even be trying to figure out what is it? What do I believe in? Because you have life experience under your belt and sometimes what you believed you thought you could count on God for does not line up with your experience and so your faith shifts. And the problem is the authors of scripture don't talk directly about this. Uh, once in a while you'll see it like Peter has a journey of faith and Paul and the psalmist. I think the reason this isn't so much in Scripture, is a few reasons. One is we live longer than the people in the Bible, therefore our faith goes through more of a journey, just as a general statement. We just generally live about three times longer than the average person in the Bible. And over time, your faith moves around. Also, our culture makes false promises to us. So we expect a different life than the life we have and when the life we expect is different than the life we get, it affects our faith. Also, because sometimes things just happen in the Bible and they don't just happen to us. People get healed. Jesus makes statements, if you have enough faith, you can move a mountain. Uh, chair, move over there. No. And so it's just different today. It, it, it's tricky also, we are losing faith in our institutions right now. There's tremendous abuse, there's cover-up, there's domineering, there's power-mongering, there's hypocrisy, there's gaslighting, uh, all done in churches. And so people really start to question faith. Is the church the safe place for me to express my faith? So faith in the 21st century, it's a good bit more complicated than the faith in the first century. Uh, I'm just going to put a quick slide. We're not going to give the time that this deserves, but Brian McLaren's actually helpful here because he lays out the four stages of faith. And I wonder, just by putting this on the screen, if it might help you just to mentally circle where you are. It starts out with simplicity, and then it moves to complexity, and then it moves to perplexity, and then it moves to harmony. Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, harmony. 
I want to speak to those of you who are in deconstruction right now. Um, in the words of Derek Zoolander, deconstruction is so hot right now. I think that's not actually Derek Zoolander that said it. Any Zoolander, I didn't quite do my research. Is it Mufasa? The Will Ferrell character, I think, is actually the one that says that. I may have misquoted. Mufasa, is that his name, Alina? Can someone help me out? The sermon's not going to continue until we get this resolved. There's got to be a Zoolander fan in the room. Mufasa. It is Mufasa. No, no. Zoolander was the correct. Yeah. Deconstruction. Thanks for it very much. Deconstruction is so hot right now. And uh, I get it. I think because of all the reasons I just shared above, including some of the horrendous things that are coming out in some church leaders. Um, I just want to say to those of you who are in deconstruction, you're not sure who to trust. It can feel extremely disorienting. It can be at times terrifying. You can feel combative. Uh, for some of you, I've met a number of you over the years, you come into church with your fists raised and, and you're not sure if you can trust leaders. Boy, we understand that. There's plenty of evidence and reason for deconstruction. I, I just want to tell you something. I don't mean to sound like the grandpa uh, of this group, but I went through my first deconstruction phase in, starting in 1997. And so I say that to say that I've been on that journey for a few decades and it is terrifying especially when you go for the first time. It's terrifying and you wonder what you can stand on. Um, and I think the, the problem we have now is we're in such an extreme culture that we're so rapidly tearing down that there's nothing left. There's nothing left to stand on. And it's really important for those of you who would describe yourself in a deconstruction phase to find something that you can count on for sure. And as we close here in a minute or two, I'll give you a couple of ways you can do that. I have found what is helpful is rather than chasing reconstruction, instead to chase transformation. Cheryl John says, we go through deconstruction hoping to find the stasis of reconstruction, but God specializes in transformation. Transformation is not rebuilding as much as being reoriented and being held in mystery being held in mystery. Deconstruction is scary. And oftentimes in those phases that McLaren pointed out, it can go much longer than we want, but you can find harmony again. It can feel like an uneasy alliance, but at the same time, a, a deeper and richer and more true experience. Just as we close, just a couple more things. Uh, we have a tendency to think of faith as thinking rather than embodied action. I think one of the reasons our faith gets stunted as church people or those of you who are not followers of Christ is because you're trying to think your way to belief or to, to faith in Christ. And it's, thinking is a gift. Intellect is a gift. I'm not saying that you shouldn't think. I'm not saying that you should check your brain at the door. But really, faith in the Scripture is an embodied action. It's an active, it's a movement. It's something that you give yourself to. So if you're struggling with your faith, I would encourage you to consider moving more than thinking. I think our tendency in our culture is that we expect things to come to us. But Jesus invites us to go. Uh, we sit around in our culture and we want everything kind of coming on our terms. And so we sit and we think we can think our way to faith. Meanwhile, Jesus is saying, get up off the couch and go. So it might be for you in order to experience faith, particularly those of you in deconstruction, you may need to get up and move 
which looks like doing the words and the commands of Jesus rather than thinking about what you believe. Faith is active, it's embodied, it's lived. That's how faith works. It's, it's, it's not so much a philosophy, it's more an apprenticeship. I'm gonna invite Daniel and the band to come out and prepare us to lead and just as they do, uh, I, was, I was scrolling Facebook yesterday and a, a dear friend of mine named Bill he posted an article on Facebook about grief. And uh, Bill and his wife, uh, they had to bury their teenage daughter about a year and a half ago, just over a year and a half ago. It's one of the, of course, hardest things they've ever been through in their life. And they have very publicly grieved and they've shared their grief in a very public way. And so Bill was posting this article on grief. And I thought he was posting the article to say, Here's a helpful article on grief, but he posted the article to say, this is one of the most useless articles on grief I've ever read. Bill basically said, I can tell that the author of this article has never lost a loved one. They're writing about grief from an intellectual perspective, not an embodied perspective. And then Bill went on to share his embodied perspective of grief, and it was beautiful, it was powerful. Bill said, he said, I think about my daughter every moment of every day. I, I miss her every moment of every day. But when she died, my wife and I made the decision that we're gonna get outside more and we're gonna find a new hobby that we've never done before that we do together. He said, so I've taken up fly fishing and my wife and I play golf three or four times a week and we bought a camper. And he went on to talk about how, while it is true that grief can crush you and it can make you feel like you're drowning, there is also hope and there's goodness in life. And so he was sending this idea that if you're gonna grieve, it has to be this embodied experience. And as I was reading his poignant post, I, what occurred to me is like, Bill's telling us how to live by faith. Not to sit around and wait for things and wait for something to pass, but to get out and take it. So I wanna invite you as we continue to worship, in fact, those in the room, I'm gonna invite you to stand, to consider how you could walk by faith this week. What is God calling you to do? as you embody your faith. We'll be back in just a few moments to receive communion, another act of faith, but until then, let's worship together.